what an amazing song for us at this, particularly in this moment. It really be kind of, it becomes a bridge between last week and this week. Because last week I said, I hope when you go home that you will stop long enough to imagine a burning bush in front of you. Remember the one that Moses spoke to God and then Moses comes up with all his alibis, excuses, says, I can't do it. And God just simply says, with kind of a shrug of his shoulders, not understanding why anybody could say, I can't do it when God is the one who's asked. He just says, but I'll be with you. And then when I think that the reason God could say to you and me today that I will be with you is because he's given us that victory. This isn't just figuring out how we can do it with some sort of self-help book in front of us. This is realizing that we are walking, my friends, in resurrection power. That is not my power. That is the power of God. And that's what makes possible the things that we're talking about. If we come in here thinking that we got to memorize the verse and say the right prayers and try to figure out how we are going to do it, then we will not do it. But when we can come together as the body of Christ and dare declare that we rise in a power that is not our power, but that we step into the power of God, then Jesus just simply says to each one of us in front of our burning bush, but I'll be with you. That's power, my friends. Anyways, love that song. That's, that's, that's good. Today, we're, um, the title that I've given our thoughts today is Ready Mixed Gods. Terrible thing to do you just before supper, lunch, I should say, dinner, hungry, growling. Meat lasagna, prepared already. Only needs a few minutes in the oven, and it will look good, and it'll smell good. And when you come home tired, it looks even better. Ready-made suppers can be an absolutely wonderful thing. It accommodates people who have busy schedules. Got one? Okay, well, I'm finished. (laughs) It accommodates people like me who do not know how to cook. Thank you, I see that hand. Now I'm feeling like we're in a revival or something's going on here. It fits perfectly into our busy world. And even though they are not the best for us, our culture generally approves. So why not, right? Here's our challenge. This same philosophy of convenience slips over into most aspects, if not all aspects of our lives, if we are not careful. Now I'm sure you have heard this before, but this morning I want to investigate this idea of casual faith at a little deeper level. I find a tendency in the human heart to do the same things with our faith. We sometimes try to formulate a God who will accommodate our immediate needs, one based upon my personal reasoning and doesn't require too much study or time. After all, we're busy. Thank you, thank you. My daughter-in-law is very faithful. And who has time these days to spend time reading one's Bible? It really stems from a desire to get a God whom we can understand, whom we can fully explain to our liking. 
It keeps things tidy. It, it, it's a whole lot less stressful. And we can use him to work in our lives. I mean, think about it. We don't typically want a God we can't explain. Somebody asks us the hard questions, we've got to find the easy answer, or it's embarrassing, particularly if you're just defining yourself as a person of faith. No, we want to explain it. Therefore, with a few adjustments, we can bring him down to our mind's size. And so this morning, I want to examine an occasion when a group of people created a ready-made God, and they wanted a God who would accommodate them, and the story goes like this. And the story goes like this. When the people saw that Moses was no longer coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and they said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't even know what's happened to him. And then we slip down into verses uh, 9 and 10. This is coming out of Exodus 32. Slip down into verses 9 and 10, and it really contains God's assessment of the situation. He says, I've seen these people, the Lord says to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, then I will make you into a great nation. Second time in a row, second week in a row, we discover that when we just kind of get obstinate and start banging our heads against God's holy wall, he starts getting angry. Not, this isn't the temper tamper, temper, temper, yes, kind of anger. It's, it's just, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with these people? I've got a plan. This plan is to go on into history. It's to move on into the future, and I can't even budge them. They're just wanting to go their own way, and so out of a holy frustration, he just gets angry. This holy kind of indignation with people that don't, excuse me, that don't get what he wants them to do. Thankfully, there are people like Moses who step into the gap. Pray. We need some of those. No, God's assessment of this episode was not a good one. Why was God unhappy with his people who are so ready to buy into a God designed for their own convenience? A God of their own design. I think there's three reasons in this story this morning why God is upset when we formulate our imitation gods. Here's the first one. The first reason God is upset with gods of convenience is because this kind of God is built simply upon the wrong information. Went back to verse 1, you'd read this. When the people saw that Moses was, no, was so long and coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. And as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. No, Moses had left the Israelite people and traveled to the top of Mount Sinai. That's the story we're looking at. He's gone up the mountain in order to receive God's word. We understand that that word he's getting is the Ten Commandments. And the truth is, Moses was a little slow coming down off the mountain, at least in the minds of these people. After all, if you had an encounter like he was having with God, I think that retreat was a little more special than the normal retreat, and you'd all want to hang around a little while. But whatever the case, Moses is up there, not coming down when the people think he should come down, and so things start to unfold. 
unfold in this way. His absence caused these people to struggle. Listen to the language. To struggle, to doubt. Maybe they were afraid that Moses had died up there and now they're all alone, so we better pull the committees together, right? Organize something to get us out of our mess. Besides, for many, there's an inherent desire to simply play outside the rules. I know that's what he says, but... But whatever, they were told not to go near the mountain with the threat of death hanging over them. So as a result of being left in the wilderness with no one but God, the result was the people lost control, and that's something we don't like. And since they couldn't explain what was happening, and with this very human need to know all the details, it motivated them to do a rather foolish thing. They built and worshipped an idol. But what motivated them to do this? I think there's two common things that our text kind of pulls out for us in verse 1. The first one was this. When the people saw, or what they didn't see, the second one is we don't know. Let's, Let's work with this idea of what the people saw. Because both of these are negative motivators in, in this kind of context. And you and I have absolutely the same tendencies in our hearts, so we can, we can identify with this. And matter of fact, when you're going through the Old Testament and you're seeing all the things that as you're reading cause you to click your tongue, just pause for a moment because you'll probably find yourself in there somewhere. It's just how we are. We make no apologies for it other than to ask Jesus to forgive us for that kind of behavior. But we're all in the same boat, friends. And so this isn't, this isn't a case where we're going to go back and go, shame, shame. No, we're looking for ourselves in the text so that we don't get ourselves in the same dilemma as the people in our text got themselves into. When the people saw, think, think of the motivating power of what you see or you don't see. Eve, right at the beginning of the story tempted to commit the first sin we find God's description of the event Genesis 3 6 when the woman saw when the woman saw right highlight that that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom she took some and ate it and gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it the whole story began with with these few little words the woman saw and what she saw she defined as good, beneficial. Not because she reasoned this out. This wasn't Eve sitting down saying, okay, let me ponder this one for a moment. Okay, God said this. This is saying this. This isn't coming together well. No, being the person that I I need to obey, she's not reasoning anything here. She's just going through the power of what you see. It was the opposite to what God had told her. No, this wasn't something she did after prayer and careful consideration. Not a desire to understand beyond what she was seeing. She wasn't playing the movie forward to find out how this story was going to finish. No, she just, she just saw it looked good, and she ate. I think, friends, we need to be reminded that our eyes will lead us astray. It's a simple little line, a simple, or a simple little lesson for us this morning. I think it's one that we can take away. Because the truth is this, our eyes will always rob us 
if we're not careful, if our eyes are not set on the things of God, I'm serious. This this is sound like Sunday school, just trust Jesus and believe. I know. If our eyes are not set upon the things of God, I'm here to tell you our eyes will rob us. A.W. Tozer in his book, I Talk Back to the Devil, said, you can take two small 10-cent pieces, just two dimes, and shut out the view of a panoramic landscape. You can go to the mountains and just hold two coins closely in front of your eyes. Though the mountains are still there, you cannot see them at all because there's a dime shutting off the vision in each eye. May I dare to suggest that all the things we collect, those things we think we need to have, the hours we spend perfecting what we think we should be, look like, do, the hours spent working ourselves to death to get what we are told will get us ahead, are like those two dimes. We hold them up before our eyes and they blind us to the panoramic view of God's greatness, his ability to provide what we really need, his power that enables us to live the kind of life that honors him. No, I believe the Spirit is calling the church to take careful assessment of what matters. He's calling us, friends. He wants us to get rid of the silly little things that are blocking his view, or our view, I should say, of him. It's an amazing view. When we can get down and really figure out what it is he has in front of us, what he holds up and offers us, it is one view to take in. No, he's not, us any, he's not selling us any sort of second-hand merchandise here. The other common mistake or assumption out of verse 1 is this. It's the phrase, we don't know. That, that phrase reflects an insecurity in the voices of the people as they stand there at the base of Mount Sinai. It was good old Bill Shakespeare who said, Our doubts are traitors. They make us lose the good we often might win by fearing to attempt. A little three-year-old girl, frightened by burst of thunder, came rushing into her mother's room. Mommy, I'm scared. And her sleepy mother responded by saying, I want you to go back to bed. God will be there with you. The little girl stopped at the doorway. She turned and she said, Mommy, why don't I sleep here with Daddy and you go in there and be with God? <laughs> Insecurity as a result of not knowing all the information, often drives people to make foolish, or should we say short-sighted decisions. The athlete that is unsure about his strength or ability turns to steroids. An insecure teenager may turn to permissive sex or drugs to pacify the demands of their friends. An unbelieving adult may withhold his tithe because he does not think he can afford to give it. A lady who is insecure may dress in improper clothing to get men's attention. Now, we will build ready-mix gods if we are following the wrong information. You see, there's a second reason God is upset with gods of convenience, and that is this. They are built around the wrong focus. Notice a couple of phrases that reveal the focus of these people. In in verse 1 we read, Come, make us gods who will go before us. The idea of having a god is good. They they just got their eyes set on the wrong god, obviously. 
They wanted a God who was convenient in the moment, comfortable. They thought they could define and create him according to their immediate needs. They wanted to worship as they pleased, when they pleased, and where they pleased. No, they wanted a God designed to go before them, lead them, get them out of their perceived mess, get them to their desired goals. In Pensacola, Florida, there was a church that advertised a 30-minute worship service, literally saying the promise is we'll get you in and out fast. They promised convenience. You all looking at your watches now, right? wonder where that sign went. <laughs> we need to be reminded that faithfully following Jesus Christ is not always easy. You notice that. Is it always convenient and it isn't always comfortable? Last week I was reading in Revelation about the thousands of people who, have, who will have been and will be martyred by their faith. If, your faith. if you think faith is supposed to be convenient, if you think it's supposed to be comfortable and something you can control, then God owes these people an apology for all the suffering they experienced. Now there is a challenge in the middle of all of this. Don't allow anybody to stand up here and just put smiles on your faces and saying Jesus is wonderful. He is but his best wonder always comes in our darkest moments. Have you noticed that? I mean, it's a simple truth that the, shine, the light shines brighter when it's dark. No, we're called in a journey, excuse me, we're called in a journey, on, on, onto, into a journey that, that is not defined by comfort, convenience, and ease and safety. We're just called into a journey, according to last week, with a God who says, but I'll be with you. That's my deal. I'll be with you. Bill Hybels, in his book, Who Are You When No One's Looking, wrote this. Every single day we make choices that show whether we are courageous or cowardly. We choose between the right thing and the convenient thing. Sticking to a conviction or caving in for the sake of comfort, greed, or approval. We choose either to take a carefully thought out risk or to crawl into a shrinking shell of safety, security, and inactivity. We choose either to believe in God and trust him, even when we do not always understand his ways, or to second guess him and cower in the corners of doubt and fear. There's always the choice. It lies there for us. This thing of building a faith based on comfort, convenience, and control is so appealing. In fact, we, we like it a little too much because it fits our design. I mean, just, just being honest with ourselves, J.P. Moorland in his book, Apologetic Reasoning in the Christian Mind, go get it, right? It might be out there in the back. I don't know. You'll be racing for it, I'm sure. But he tells of an experience that illustrates the importance of truth. One afternoon, he writes, I was sharing the gospel in a student's dorm room at the University of Vermont. The student began to espouse ethical uh, uh, relativism, which he defines as, whatever is true for you is true for you, and whatever is true for me is true for me. But no one should force his or her views on other people since everything is relative. That's an easy one to creep in, isn't it, eh? When we're a little nervous about sharing our truth, isn't there the temptation to say, ah, you know, I, 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 I can't just force my thoughts on them? It's, it's alive in our culture. But anyways, the story goes on. 
Moreland says, I knew that if I allowed him to get away with ethical relativism, there could be for him no such thing as real objective sin measured against the objective moral command of God and thus no need for a savior. I thanked the student for his time and I began to leave his room. And on the way out, I picked up his small stereo and I started out the door with it. Hey, what are you doing, he shouted. Well, I'm leaving your room with your stereo. Well, you can't do that, he said. But Moreland said, well, I happen to think it's permissible to steal stereos if it'll help a person's religious devotions. And I myself could use a stereo to listen to Christian music in my morning devotions. Now, I would never try to force you to accept my moral beliefs in this regard. Because, as you said, everything's relative and we shouldn't force our ideas on others. But surely you aren't going to force on me your belief that it is wrong to steal your stereo, are you? Moreland looked at him and continued, You know what I think? I think that you espouse relativism in areas of your life where it's convenient. Say in sexual morality. Or in areas about which you do not care. But when it comes to someone stealing your stereo or criticizing your own moral hobbiness, I suspect that you become a moral absolutist pretty quick, don't you? You see, when we start messing with the information, when we start messing with our focus, it's so easy for us to kind of just pick and choose what it is we want. Stand firm in what we believe, but kind of, well, shade over into the other area when it's not quite what we believe or want to believe. Now, some people want a faith that only requires what they want. An hour a week is good. Some people want a faith that does not require them to give any of their money to church or to those in need. After all, it's mine. But by the way, that is a lie. None of what we have is ours. It all belongs to God. That's why he often tells us to give it away. Uh, just on a side, kind of a note for your edification. <laughs> the point, some people want a faith that does not require them to change their behavior. Notice the use of the plural, person, per, the plural personal pronoun us in this text. Let us or go and make us. Notice that the people said, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us, we don't know what has happened to him. And so Aaron fashions the golden calf out of their offerings of gold and very simply says to them, last part of verse 4, here you go, these are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. I don't get that line. But you know, there have been times when I have been so blinded by my desire for what I want, I can make stupid lines like that. There's not a person in the crowd who couldn't look over their shoulder and say, no, it was Moses that brought us. But when you get desperate, desiring what it is you want, living out of your doubts and your fears, you make crazy statements and then you believe them without question. You see, when we're doing what is a little shady, at least in the eyes of God, excuse me, in the eyes of God, we feel a lot more comfortable with the us than with the me. Everybody's doing it is a real comfortable motto. 
And so Aaron, under his strong pressure, slides right in, takes his focus off what he previously believed. Yesterday, he would have given them a different story if they asked him the questions about God. It would have been different. But he, he slides right in, takes his focus off what he previously believes, and adjusts his belief system to align with what had in that moment become the popular version of truth. We like others to agree with us. And there are many who will readily join a belief system that fits their desired lifestyle. Friends, we're watching that happen in leaps and bounds within our culture today. We have to be careful. We have to know what the information is. We gotta, we gotta get our eyes on the focus. We have to see this or the church will lose what it is. As long as we can make a few adjustments to suit ourselves, we like that. And it's no different now than it was then. These people wanted a comfortable, convenient God that, would that they could control. Because when you remove the G with the capital G, then life has the freedom to become pretty self-focused. And well, I just happen to like me. And without saying it out loud, we may be harboring desires for a controllable God, a faith that caters to what our culture says we need and should believe. And it is so much more comfortable and it's so much safer. Two friends were walking in the forest one day when suddenly they stumbled upon a large grizzly bear who decided they looked like a good snack. The two started running away when all of a sudden one of them stopped and the other one said, what are you stopping for? Don't you know the grizzly bear's right behind us? His friend replied, I'm tying my shoes so I can run faster. And at this he couldn't help but laugh. And he says, you think you're going to outrun the grizzly? And the friend replied, I don't have to outrun the grizzly. I only have to outrun. Yeah. In our self-driven society, how often do we act like this friend? as we try to exist in community. But the gospel's simple message is, it's not about me. It's not about me. It never was about me. No matter, <clears throat> no matter what the experts want to tell us, and all the pressure they want to put on us to take care of ourselves because nobody else will, I'll tell you, that's the lowest step of faith. Because in the middle of the argument is a God who's shaking his head and asking us to do something. And we say, no, I can't. This, I, I can't. We give all our Moses kinds of excuses. And what's he saying behind it all? I will be with you. You see, it's not about me. never was intended to be about me. It is always about God, the one who will care and direct me in the areas that will be most meaningful to him and in the end to me. But notice the order. The gospel simple message is it's not about me. It is essential that we eliminate the self-centered nature that is all too prevalent in our world and our churches today. There is a gospel truth that the arrogance of this 21st century cannot mess with, no matter how smart and sophisticated we think we have become. The truth is the truth. It has survived this long. Nobody's going to break its back. They'll mess with it. 
They'll confuse it. They'll convince some of us even overwhelmingly to follow it. But the truth will always be the truth. When you put up the dimes in front of your face, it does not erase the mountain. It just distorts the view. Always. Third reason God's upset with ready-mixed gods is because they'll lead, us into, they'll re, they'll lead to the wrong outcome. Verse 6, so the next day the people rose early, sacrificed burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink, and then they got up to indulge in revelry. Notice the outcome is recorded in our text. The first wrong outcome is empty worship. Aaron built an altar in front of the calf. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't imagine that calf, no matter what carrot of gold it was made out of, could do anything to squelch their fears or their doubts or answer the big questions they needed right then and there. But what it can do is provide license to do stuff that for the time being masks our fears, our doubts, and our unanswered questions. Sin is pleasurable. Don't fool yourself. It is also a great cover for our greatest needs. But I'm standing in front of you as a witness that that kind of worship can only be cold, dead, and lifeless. There is nothing huggable about a golden calf. Whereas God created you and I to have this meaningful relationship with him, He wants to be our friend. He wants to find our fulfillment in him, whether we understand it all or even when we cannot control it at all. Idol worship, whether a golden calf or shop and trip for stuff we don't need or an hour on a porn site or withholding our possessions from one with needs or, or, or your particular addiction, whatever it is, that golden calf is an empty ritual. You already know if you have lived more than three years as an adult, it doesn't satisfy. Well, at least not beyond the immediate moment. Gordon Dahl said, most middle-class Americans tend to worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. The second wrong outcome is an inappropriate lifestyle. In verse 6, true worship of God should be a life-changing experience. It was Napoleon Bonaparte, bless his soul, who said, if Socrates would enter the room, we should rise and do him honor. But if Jesus Christ came into the room, we should fall down on our knees and worship him. Friends, he's here this morning, by the way. Just a heads up on that one. He's here. He's walked into the room. We've had an amazing worship experience, but we can't contain it or confine it to this space. It's got to stick to us like Velcro because we're going to leave this space and we're going to walk into a room or into a world that desperately stands in need. And yet this problem of kind of doing the worship thing and then kind of walking out and doing the world thing, that's not uncommon. Amos, in Amos chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, says this. When will the new moon be over? That was a a festival, a ritual worship experience for the Jewish people then. When will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain? And when will the Sabbath be over that we may trade our wheat, making the the ephah small, that's the measure of grain, and the shekel large, the money we'll get, falsifying the balance by deceit that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. Jeremiah, he wrote this. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, 
walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations? It's like Jeremiah is saying, where's the logic in it? There isn't any. You can't do them both. My family's kind of life, well, my life first, and I'm, I'm hoping my family's with me on this. Is, is when Joshua looks around and he says, I don't know what you're going to serve. We're getting ready to go into the new land. I don't know what you're going to serve. If it's, the, if it's the gods of the lands around you, go do it. But as for me and my house, we will give it to me. Oh, we need that. Not just in some sort of individual private devotional moment. We, we need that. We, it needs to flow from us in such a way that it reaches our families, that it touches the world around us. It walks into our workplaces with us. Here's my conclusion. Last week I said there was a burning bush in front of each of us from which God is calling us to some task that is bigger than us, but where he promised that he would go with us. That was our, that was our call last night. And I, and I said, would, would you take that burning bush with you into the week? Would you allow it in some way to, de to define a prayer that says, God, show me my calling? And if it's a little bigger than I think, would you help me to understand that you're with me? That was last week. This morning, friends, there's a golden calf in front of each of us from which God is calling us to, to, calling us to some task that we don't always understand. There's a golden calf in front of each of us seducing us away from the only true God. It may be one built by the culture around us and, enjoy, and, 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 and inviting us to join the party. Or it may be one that over the years we've built ourselves, our own ready-mixed God, carefully designed for personal convenience and safety. But here's the call this morning. Friends, there's a God out there who created and built an amazing universe. Who knows the beginning from the end whose power is limitless. In fact, he is so much more than I could ever understand or figure out or completely describe if given a hundred lifetimes. But I'm telling you right now, he knows you inside out. He knows me inside out. There's absolutely nothing hidden. And he loves you in ways that are as immeasurable as he is. And you don't need to reorganize him you don't need to redefine him, and you don't need to create your own ideas about him. You just need to trust him. And in trusting him, obey him. And in so doing, walk the path that he's laid out for you. The, the one that's going to help get defined by, by coming to that burning bush and saying, what's the call, God? What's the call? He, he's going to lay it out for you. And if you fail at your first attempt, he'll personally design another one. Don't walk away. Don't slink away. Never slink away from God. His love is too great. He draws you, always draws you. He goes after sheep that wander away. And if this is your umpteenth failure, you'll personally design yet another if you humbly, willingly come to him. No, no, he, he's there. He never gives up. Just so you and him can share a relationship best defined by his desires to love you without question. In such a way that our hearts are filled with worship for him alone. Give me the last word, alone. Alone. Give it to me. Alone. Alone. 
You can't, you can't share this one, friends. It's unshareable. It's either this or this, never a part of one. Well, the ministry team is going to lead us in, in, in uh, our final worship song. I really invite you to give serious thought. We, we can't rush out of here. I mean, you've got things you have to go to. You can't rush out of here in spirit. Let me put it that way. And either think that was a good sermon or, or put you to sleep, I, wherever you are in that one. You can't just walk out. You have to make some point of decision about this God who doesn't share himself with other ones. You have to decide which one you're going to go on. Because when you make that decision and as you leave, that decision will follow you. It'll give you wrong focuses, it'll give you the wrong information, and it'll give you the wrong outcomes. It will, unless we stick with him. Please. Next week, we're going to talk about coming and standing on the shores of the promised land, and decisions have to get made there as we do this quick little journey from Exodus to, to the promised land. Show up next week, but I'm hoping that in that process, you're not going to be standing at the, at, the, at the shore where we said, no, the giants are too big. I'm hoping when we get to next week, you're going to stand at the ones and you're going to join the, the priests who are willing to put their feet in the Jordan River because they knew that God would always be, give it to me, with them. Thank you. Thank you. Always. Amen.